Hey everyone, and welcome to the 20th episode of the Liam McCollum Show. I guess it's somewhat of a small milestone. Um, my first interview was back in January, and I've honestly had much more success in getting interviews than I thought that I would. And I guess it goes to show that people are really willing to talk about things that they're interested in, just if you reach out to them. So today I'm going to be talking to Balin Linekin. He is a food lawyer, scholar, and law professor. He is the author of Biting the Hands That Feed Us, How Fewer, Smarter Laws Would Make Our Food System More Sustainable. Linekin serves on the board of directors of the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. We're going to be talking about some of his most recent articles from Reason.com regarding the meat shortage that we are seeing in the United States and how certain laws and regulations have been problematic for farmers. Here's the interview. Thanks, Liam, for having me on. I'm Balin Linekin. I'm a food lawyer and author, uh, sometime a scholar and law prof, and uh, a I think we're talking because I wrote a column for Reason uh, on some uh, you know, meat shortages and uh, regulations that are unfortunately promoting that. Yeah, and um, recently there have been a bunch of big processors all across the country that have shut down and a lot of local farms have been struggling because of this. Do you wanna talk maybe a little bit about the Wholesome Meat Act of 1967 and basically certain things that are restricting or some red tape that is causing these farms to struggle? Sure. Um, so the Wholesome Meat Act of 1967, which took effect, I think, two or three years after it was passed, um, uh, Congress delegated to the USDA the authority to regulate uh, intrastate meat sales. So I don't think anyone would disagree um, that the USDA has the authority under the Constitution to regulate the interstate meat sales between you know Colorado and Kentucky, let's say. Um, but does the USDA have the authority to regulate within any one state? Um, no, I think that's pretty clear. Um, and unfortunately, Congress delegated to an agency, the USDA, a power that it didn't even have itself. Um, so we've got a constitutional issue right off there. Uh, so that's that's certainly a legal question. Um, and, and I think still a right one. Uh, but then we've also got the impact of that, which is not legal necessarily, but economic and has really shaped, uh, reshaped the face of, uh, of meat and meat processing in this country. So it used to be that there were hundreds, if not thousands of abattoirs and small processors and whatnot um, sprinkled around the country and small farmers would you know, bring their, their cow, let's say, have it slaughtered and processed and turned into steaks and all that kind of stuff, and then they would sell it. Um, it's the easiest way to do things, probably the most efficient, and it's one that farmers like. Well, the Wholesome Meat Act changed that and said basically that it, it created a, a system with three different options. So as a farmer, you can contract with one of the large processors, which we've just discussed due to COVID-19 outbreaks um, at many of these plants around the country. They've been forced to close or dial back their work. So that's sort of the, the current issue. Um, but you have these USDA inspected plants in about half of the states, um, and you can sell that meat anywhere, whether it's uh, pork or beef, anything under the Federal Meat Inspection Act. Um, and there's poultry is is uh, has a separate regulatory scheme. Anyway, so you get your meat processed in a plant in any state that's USDA inspected and provided it 
passes inspection, you can sell it anywhere. Um, and that's what the big processors are doing. They're contracting with farmers to you know deliver their pigs or cows or whatnot, have them slaughtered and processed. So that's one step. Then there's the state system, which arose after the um, Wholesome Meat Act of 67, which is the, the state inspected that are um, enforcing uh, regulations that are at least equal to federal law. Um, and you can sell those commercially, those cuts of meat, anywhere within a state. So if you know your cow was born in Colorado, it was raised and slaughtered in Colorado in a state-inspected facility, you can sell that meat anywhere in the state. can't sell it anywhere outside of the state, though, uh, um, unless it's processed. There, there are a couple exceptions, but for the most part, that's, that's the rule. So you've got these two systems. It's strange, and, and most everyone who uses a state-inspected facility questions why this is the case, and I, I don't have a good answer. But you, know, you can raise a cow in Taiwan or Kenya or the Netherlands, and provided that it's inspected according to the rules uh, of the country, and the uh, USDA has inspected and, and judged that to be an acceptable practice. Uh, sorry, I'm trying to combine practice and process into one word, and it's not working. Um, provided they find it acceptable, then, then that let's say that Dutch or Kenyan or Taiwanese farmer can sell their meat anywhere in the United States. Mm which, you know, why can't American farmers sell meat across state lines? But, you know, and I'm, I have nothing against foreign producers, but I don't think that they should get a leg up on American producers. You know, let's treat them equally. Right. And so that's, those are the two main inspection regime, regimes. And that's where, you know, three quarters or more of our meat comes from. But then you have these state facilities, um, that aren't inspected, uh, you know, by the USDA or by state inspectors necessarily, and those people are the ones who sell a side of beef. For example, you know, they sell this giant, massive portions, and it's because a consumer. Um, there's now one state that has an exception, but a consumer has to own a share in the living animal, um, and so you know, you're buying 25% of a cow while it's still alive. You know, let's you can only buy. Bessie, you can't buy a steak from these small farmers. And that's the problem we have. Um, it was always a bad idea. I talk about this in my in my book, which came out about four years ago, um, how these uh, you know, local custom slaughter facilities, as they're known, uh, force farmers really just, and it's not the facilities, but the regulations that, that do this. Yeah, you can only sell a portion of a cow. You can't sell, let's say you live next door to a grocery store and you're raising cows. You can't sell to that grocery store or to a butcher or to a restaurant or at a farmer's market unless you've gone through either that USDA inspected or that state equal to inspection process. It's a bad idea. It doesn't make sense. And right now, with those facilities being the ones that are really hit hard by COVID-19, it's a terrible process and terrible idea. We have, um, you know, the smaller farmers are doing pretty well, very well in some cases, um, because people like me and you can't get meat at our grocery store, and so we're going directly to farmers. Uh, more people are, are, you know, discovering who their farmers are, which is nice. Um, 
but this is something that should have changed a long time ago. You know, you should be able to slaughter an animal that you raised, you know, some local grass fed beef and sell it to the co-op down the street. Um, but you can't because the regulatory structure is, is what it is. So thanks to the wholesome meat act, we have this problem that now has really come to a head due to the coronavirus outbreak, which is that local farmers have the capacity to address some of this issue. Again, they're not, you know, they're they're a small part of the uh, the overall food system, but we're handcuffing them at a time when we need them most. Hmm. And now you have another article on the new Wyoming law that actually allows local ranchers to sell directly to consumers. Do you want to talk yeah. a little bit about that yeah. and whether or not they're they've had any legal action against them or anything like that? Sure. Well, the the law was passed uh, within, within the last couple of months, but it doesn't take effect until uh, July first, I believe. So there's been no repercussions. The state, from what I hear, is confident that any um, challenges, which would presumably come from the USDA itself, um, you know, will be uh, beaten back. Let's say. Um, but the basic premise of the law is that you know, and I explained, um, you can only buy a share of an animal, a living animal. Um, and up to now, no state has been creative enough to use that, you know, the language of federal law and actually apply it and say, okay, fine, you can buy a portion of a living cow, um, but you can also get the, you know, the cuts from it. Um, you can get the steaks and all that stuff. So you don't have to buy half of a, an animal. You can buy, you know, smaller percentages. And so, yeah, there's still figuring out again because it doesn't take effect till July exactly how it's going to work. But from everything I've heard, farmers are really interested. They're at least starting off probably going to devote a portion of their, let's say, cattle or hogs to this, um, you know, to see as a sort of test and see how it goes. Um, but I think it really is a model for what other states can do down the road. But it would be nice if. There are now a few efforts um, to get rid of uh, those sort of restrictive Wholesome Meat Act rules, um, in which case that would probably neuter the Wyoming law. But I think the the law's authors and ranchers uh, everywhere would be happy if, if they didn't have to have this kind of end around and they could just you know, ultimately sell cuts of meat to consumers. And now you have another article about um, COVID-19 highlighting harms of bad food regulations. Are there any other regulations other than the Wholesome Meat Act, the ones that are in the Wholesome Meat Act that you find problematic? That's the most problematic one, but there are some other things. Um, I think you're referring to the counter article that I, I wrote uh, probably last week. And, you know, in talking to ranchers, mid-sized ranchers, small ranchers um, and processors around the country, you know, there are some issues, for example, they could uh, ramp up productivity if the USDA, um, you know, would be a little more flexible with their overtime rules. Their inspectors can work up to 40 hours a week for, you know, in a plant, um, and the plant doesn't have to pay them anything because the law says they have to inspect it. If they want to work 41 hours, then suddenly overtime rules kick in. Um, 
and it can be really challenging for small producers. You know, that's that's not on the scope of uh, the sort of broader problems of the Wholesome Meat Act. But yeah, there are uh, wastewater regulations, which I talk about, which are challenging for facilities that want to try and ramp up. You know, they're doing, they're busy, uh, but they might have a little extra capacity that they could fit in. But somehow the uh, wastewater regulations under the EPA say you need, you know, you need like a bigger retaining pond or something or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, now if, if that was ever a good idea to have those regulations in place, now is probably not the time to. Um, you know, with with food shortages uh, possible, likely happening in various parts of the country. You know, let's let's be flexible, not rigid. Right. And now you mentioned in that same article that you think that the CARES Act funding should go to small and mid scale farmers, but the USDA has not opened up that funding. Are they? What's up with that? What's the dynamic there? Yeah, I think I was quoting uh, Judith McGeary from the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance in Texas on that one. Um, my understanding is that they're opening up uh, that funding to smaller uh, producers, but I, 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 I don't know. I'm not a, a CARES Act uh, expert by any stretch. Okay. And then you were also mentioning that, uh, I think it was another quote, that inspectors were going to these plants and it could actually make COVID-19 much worse or the outbreak much worse. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So there's, you know, these, these plants, the, particularly the big ones, you know, we're talking about places with hundreds or even thousands of employees working elbow to elbow um, on these uh, mechanized lines. And yeah, there's nothing inherently wrong with that uh, type of facility. They feed a lot of people, um, and they, you know, generally feed a lot of people with with cheap food, you know, which um, at a time like this is good. Uh, so again, nothing inherently wrong with those facilities. But if you throw in, uh, you know, foodborne illness, which which certainly ha- happens at these uh, plants uh, from time to time, and, and causes massive recalls, that's an issue. But now. You know, with people working in such close proximity to each other in these plants, you know, there, and I just saw a headline, I think three state outbreaks, I want to say there's uh, Missouri and, and a couple of other states that are right now really seeing a, a you know, a, as at a time when cases in some states are declining or evening out, these states aren't, and they've traced, uh, you know, this sort of increase in, in COVID-19 cases in those states directly to three uh, or more meat plants in these states. And so, you know, that's a huge problem. Um, basically, you have two different types of uh Systems. The big plants have usually permanent USDA inspectors on site. So let's say Tyson or you know, whomever, um, they have you know one or more inspectors always on site at their plants. The, that person, you know, they they arrive at work in the morning and they leave uh, in the evening, and, and they've been at that plant the whole day. Um, so that's the big plants. The, the more mid-sized plants, which goes uh, directly to your question um, about these roving inspectors. Smaller plants might have one inspector who, you know, shows up from nine to twelve, and then goes to a different plant two hours away, and is there from two to five or something like that. Um, and there's again nothing inherently wrong with the roving inspector, but during a time of coronavirus, you know, where even at the mid-sized plants you've got these, uh, you know, you've uh, got these heightened uh, outbreak risks. Now you add these roving inspectors who you know may be perfectly healthy, but who may, as we know, you know, it's it's easy to be asymptomatic. Um, 
but you've got these inspectors who visit one plant and then drive a hundred miles away, visit another plant. And that's unfortunately an ideal way to, to spread um, the coronavirus. And so both of these plant types, the, you know, are, are facing incredible challenges right now. And it's another reason that, you know, the small producers who use the local custom plant with only a few employees, it's just, you know, they, they can't feed everyone, but they can probably do it more safely, um, for consumers and uh, at this point, certainly for workers. Right, and now the focus has been on um, meat processors and stuff like that just within the last couple of weeks, but is there any other part of the food market that you find troubling? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, all, well, certainly restaurants are number one, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's, um, even the ones that, uh, you know, that are doing okay by some standards are really struggling right now. You know, people for the most part uh, in, in the majority of states can't go to a restaurant. And so they've become these sort of takeout places. And, you know, for a place that is, let's say, McDonald's or, you know, uh, your local taco joint or some food truck or something like that, it's, yeah, their business has taken a huge hit, but it's also not that outside of their business model. They're familiar with, you know, walk-up customers, drive-throughs, things like that. Where, you know, the restaurants are really struggling, obviously, is in, you know, fine dining and, and just places that, you know, are used to making their money on uh, the restaurant industry has, you know, notoriously um, slight margins. Yeah, they're making money on people drinking alcohol in their bars and restaurants. Um, and high-end dining, you know, no one's getting foie gras to go. I, well, sorry, maybe they are. Um, but, you know, for the most part, our people aren't, uh, you know, getting uh, out cuisine to go. And, you know, there's a, I live in Seattle. There are some great restaurants up the street here. Um, and, yeah, they're, they're offering discount meals um, just to try to keep their employees you know, getting a paycheck. And so, yeah, I definitely uh, feel for them as much as I, I do the farmers who are struggling. But everyone's struggling. I mean, it's uh, it's not just food, obviously, but then it's also, you know, the, the alcohol industry in, in some respects uh, is doing great uh, just because we're all drinking more than we used to. Um, and strangely, people have gravitated back towards beer. Um, you know, beer was in decline for a long time, and people have sort of rediscovered. You know, I don't. Can I swear? <laughs> sure. Yeah, have rediscovered <laughs> beers like Bud Light, um, and you know, craft brewers aren't doing as well as they were, uh, just because people are sort of minding their their dollars. Um, and but you know, it's uh, everyone's having a rough time in the food industry. Um, and you know, I I've extolled the virtues of cities, states, um, and even the federal government when they've rolled back rules to try to you know make life easier um, for these businesses, which you know, which we need, and we need to you know to be around so that when people do get back to work, they have a place to go, and you know, people like me and you have places to um, to go to you know hang out in a restaurant or. Yeah. A beer garden or something like that. Right. Have you, I was wondering, have you been following the Prime Act? And if, if so, um, do you support it? 
Yes, yeah. So I've um, I talk about it a lot in my book, um, and I, I'm a longtime supporter. The Prime Act is, and I uh, my latest uh, reason column, I think, um, from Saturday talks about this. So Prime Act is one of three ways that the Wholesome Meat Act um, could be improved dramatically. And before I explain exactly how, I'll just talk about the three different methods. So there's the Prime Act, which is a bill in Congress that's got bipartisan support and it's been kicking around for, I think, at least six years, five, six years. Um, There's also the USDA, which could theoretically roll back Wholesome Meat Act regulations all on its own. it's questionable legality, but plenty of agencies have been doing that sort of thing lately. Um, and even under President Obama, you know, agencies rolled back rules uh, with the, you know, the, that they didn't like or they were outdated or um, you know, on issues like immigration, things like that. Um, so that's another way. And then Congress also could act in a different way rather than passing the Prime Act, which would be to suspend, amend, or repeal uh, the the intrastate portions of the Wholesome Meat Act. So, which brings me now to you know, what's the purpose of these changes? Um, basically, to allow these local custom slaughter uh, plants and and the, the ranchers that use them and the meat that comes out of them to be sold to places like grocery stores, uh, restaurants, at farmers markets, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, the as we discussed earlier, the Wholesome Meat Act doesn't allow that and. The Prime Act, uh, which is sponsored by initially um, and originally by uh, Reps uh, Pingree, who's a, a Democrat and uh, an organic farmer with, uh, who lives on an island off Maine, and then Thomas Massey, who's a conservative, libertarian leaning, let's say, um, rancher in Kentucky, and so they co-sponsored this, and it would allow just as the other things I suggested would, these meats to be sold, um, they're processed at custom processors just by the laws of each, each state. Um, and you know, some states could have stricter regulations and, and put inspectors in all these plants and other states you know, might not, um, but you know, it's, the, uh, it's that sort of state laboratory thing. Um, but you know, states at approximately half of the states already have state inspectors in plants, and so this would not be some completely out of the blue. Oh, how do we do this and all that? You know, you know, states have been regulating meat sales within their borders for yeah since there were states and before that even. There is a big concern, I think, from the people who are against the Prime Act, just about the safety of of you know farm to consumer is. Is there a legitimate concern there? Is or do farms have a way of regulating themselves, I guess? I mean, I think there's always going to be one bad apple, um, but I, I don't think that one bad, one bad apple out of a million spoils the whole bunch. Um, I don't really subscribe to that. So, you know, we can look at things like the Food Freedom Act in Wyoming, for example, which has been in place uh, for five years now, more than five years. Um, and that deregulated a lot of intrastate um, food sales, although not meat because of the Wholesome Meat Act, the USDA threatened the state just as they did with Maine, which has a similar law and said, if you're allowing meat sales from uninspected facilities, then we're going to yank our authority for you to basically sell any meat, um, which would be a death knell for ranchers. Um, So I think that the, and I was on uh, Justin Peterson's uh, radio show yesterday. He's the, um, he was a libertarian, uh, 
uh, I guess candidate or the you know presidential uh, uh, and lost to Gary Johnson in the last election. Um, but I was on his show yesterday, and he said, "How do you you know similar question? How do you change the wholesome you know meat act? It's it says wholesome right in there. Don't we want wholesome meat? And of course, I mean it's tough to you know change the you know the you know, uh, save the children act or something like that, you know, with, um, but I just said, you know, well, my idea is the more wholesome meat act or wholesomer meat act. You know, it's, um, I think that food safety issues, um, as I uh, mentioned before are far, far more common at the larger plants, um, than they are at the smaller plants. And even if they weren't the impact of some, recall from a plant that's processing millions of pounds of um, let's say beef versus one that's processing 500 pounds of beef um, is is very obvious you know it's more people are going to get sick from the large plant than from the small one if there is some sort of e coli or salmonella mm-hmm. issues and so there's the scale issue which you know automatically um, you know means that the smaller is safer in that regard um, just because it's not going to sicken as many people and you know, Wyoming has had zero outbreaks, um, zero cases tied to its Food Freedom Act in five years. And before that, food safety advocates were gassed. You know, oh, this is going to kill people. You're going to kill people. And I don't know where those people are today, but um, you know, I'd love to have a, a, a Zoom or a Skype with them and, and say, you know, listen, you predicted dire consequences. And, and really, it's only it's only been good. You know, the right. state's food economy is in a much better place than it was. And people have freedom to innovate, to be creative, to partner up with their neighbors um, and to feed their neighbors. And I, I just don't see how the, there's a, a downside to that. And if there is, then please show me the data that, that tells me this, because otherwise it's just idle threats and uh, chicken little sky is falling kind of stuff that that just isn't true. Just to kind of change topics a little bit, um, you do have one article about immigration restrictions, and I think a lot of people would be interested to hear what your position is on that and how it can actually cause shortages. Yeah, so this was, um, I think, right before COVID-19 really uh, took root. Um, but, you know, as, as you probably know, and as, as others uh, may know, too, um, immigrants, you know, they're the people working in our, our meat plants. They're the people who are planting and picking our produce. Um, they're doing incredibly vital work. Um, and that's all they want to do. They want to come here and work. They'd, they'd love to stay home uh, in you know, Mexico or, or wherever it is they're, uh, they're from, uh, but the economy is, is simply better here and the demand for their labor is here as well. And so immigration restrictions are stupid, period. Um, but immigration restrictions during this pandemic um, when you know, I'm, I'm not going to go out and, and pick vegetables in the field. I'm just not, it's, you know, it, it's a lovely, you know, I have a little 
garden on my patio here and that's pretty much all the planting and picking i'll do and i've i've had an organic garden plot for yeah probably nine the last 10 years um and i love gardening and all that but you know i'm i'm not going to work in a field that's hard 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 work that most americans me included are unwilling to do and we need labor from people who are willing and able to work and those most often are immigrants and so again all immigration restrictions are stupid um you know as long as people are, are coming in through you know border checkpoint and they you know show some document and they're here to uh work and and to you know enjoy the freedoms that uh, americans enjoy um which are perhaps withering away as we speak but that's a separate uh, thing um but yeah i mean uh, that's that can cause a dramatic food shortage and i've heard from farmers um in california which you know grows the majority of our nation's food and, and also produces most of our beer and our wine and, and all sorts of other foods that they don't know you know how they need to plant crops because in one month or two or three or four or five or however long the crop in question takes to grow they need to pick that mm -hmm. and if it doesn't get planted it doesn't get picked and then it doesn't reach you and me in the grocery store um and so these problems that we're seeing now with meat uh, in terms of shortages could also happen in other sectors if we decide that um you know the uh, the visa program that allows workers to come here if that's not um you know embraced as a as a way to uh, regulate immigration while also feeding all of us hmm. and now just to kind of finish up here do you want to talk a little bit about um the keep food legal nonprofit? it was the first food freedom nonprofit. Yeah, um, we were incredibly successful in every way except the fundraising uh, portion of things, which it turns out to, to run a nonprofit, you, you actually need uh, some money. But um, yeah, I founded this about, um, I don't know, I guess almost 10 years ago, something like that. And it existed for about five years. Um, and the premise was that everyone has a right to food freedom, which is the right to grow, raise, produce, buy, sell, share, cook, eat, and drink the foods of their own choosing. And I think that's a constitutional right, and I've written some uh, scholarly articles on this topic and also touch on it in my book. Um, yeah, the, the idea is that you have a right to feed yourself, I have a right to feed myself, and we have a right to engage in commerce around food. Um, which is not an absolute right in the same way that, you know, you can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater. Um, so, you know, there, there can be regulations, there can be um, sensible restrictions uh, on, on that right, but it is a right. And so I argue that, you know, people have a right to, uh, let's see, foie gras I mentioned before is very controversial. It's the you know, fattened liver of a duck or a goose, um, and it's a French delicacy, um, which is also popular in this country and it's been banned by California um, and some uh, New York City most recently. Um, so that's one controversial food. Staying in New York City, soda, taxes, bans, things like that, we oppose those. And then raw milk and all the, uh, the other sort of farm type issues. Um, yeah, we did, we did not advocate for any particular diet. I, I'm not a nutritionist. Um, I think you should eat what you want or what your doctor thinks you should eat or what your cultural or family or other practices uh, indicate. There's no one right way to eat. Um, and even if there was, then choice would still be 
a wonderful thing um, because if you don't want to eat the right way, then you should be free not to. Um, So that was that was the group. That was what we advocated, and I'd still be doing it today if I was uh, any good at fundraising. (laughs) Um, Well, if you want to just pitch your book, you've mentioned it a few times, um, and then tell people where they can find you. We can let you go. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, so uh, you can get my book, Biting the Hands That Feed Us, How Fewer Smarter Laws Would Make Our Food System More Sustainable. Uh, at Amazon, your local bookseller, and, and uh, almost anywhere uh, there. You can get it directly from my publisher, Island Press, if you'd like. Um, they're the nation's largest uh, enviro publisher. Um, so you can do that. And otherwise, you can find me at baylonlinekin.com. I write a weekly column for Reason magazine. I have uh, for seven or eight years. Um, you can find me there. And um, I guess that's about that. Um, can I ask you a question yes, uh, before we go? So um, you're, I'm guessing you're like possibly in like the bedroom that you, uh, you know, was yours when you were a kid or something like that. <laughs> I am um, home, yes. This is, this is actually the computer room, but I am home from college. <laughs> Yeah. How is that? It's That's got to be a weird time. It's been incredibly interesting. Um, the transition from being in my apartment every single day to having to deal with my younger brothers and my parents and all the tasks around the house, it's been, it's been really weird. Um, and not really knowing whether or not I'll be back in school next fall, also very strange. Uh, mm-hmm. But I found that it's it's been a really interesting time to actually be able to have these interviews. I have more freedom to do that. Um, but yeah, it's it's been interesting. Yeah, no, it's uh, I I feel for you. I mean, I'm you know as as you may have guessed, I'm um, I'm I'm older than college age, um, <laughs> and so uh, you know I I um, but I remember you know uh, not so long ago I guess my my times in college and I can't imagine having to deal with what you're having to deal with, um, you know the idea of having to move home and uh, just have you know your sort of college up in the you know it's it's up in the air I guess mm-hmm. right it's like you might be online, you might be, you're in Bozeman, I think, right? I was in Missoula. Uh, Missoula, okay. Um, And, you know, you just, well, I don't need to tell you about the uncertainty, but um, I I feel for you, and I I think it's cool that you're doing these uh, podcasts, and um, yeah, I enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, well, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on. Cool. Thanks. Uh, Shoot me a link when it's uh, it's up, would you? Yeah, I will. All right. Thanks, Ed. Cheers. It's the weekend, we can let go. It's the full send, it's the get go. It's the get go, get go. Still not as mean as a bank account screen on.